Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will be the president and vice president of the United States of America. And with that, the coronavirus has suffered its first real political defeat. But while we waited for election returns, COVID-19 cases hit multiple record highs. Daily cases crossed 125,000 new cases in one day last week. And cases are up 57%, deaths up 12% over the past two weeks. And yesterday, President-elect Biden announced his COVID-19 transition task force, who will set up the scaffolding for an effective response starting the day he takes office. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed, and we've got a lot of healing to do. What a week, but it ended the right way for America and for the potential we have to finally taking on this pandemic. For so many of us, it was a moment of profound relief. After the race was called late in the morning on Saturday, crowds filled the streets in major cities all over the country. It was a collective sigh, a feeling that we could finally breathe. And yet 2020, with all of its ills, isn't over. The pandemic is raging. In fact, it's worse than it's ever been. COVID-19 is spreading at nearly exponential rates, and we're breaking records nearly every day. The next 71 days will be critical to preparing to tackle this pandemic. Importantly, President-elect Biden announced a 13-person COVID-19 task force that will prepare the transition and the forthcoming administration to be ready on day one. That means finally solving the limitations we've had on testing, building out a contact tracing core, making sure every healthcare provider has the PPE they need to care for their patients safely, coordinating the distribution of a vaccine, creating protocols for reopening, creating a federal policy on masks. I know many of the members on this team, and I can tell you they are some of the best and brightest in American public health. The fact that Democrats lost seats in the House and haven't yet won the Senate will add even more challenges to the response. Without legislative support in the Senate, passing Biden's health care proposals to increase government health care support and reduce prescription drug prices is all but impossible. It's why the fight's not over. We've got to win the two Senate runoffs in Georgia. But taking on this pandemic once and for all will also mean addressing the fact that we are an incredibly divided country. Though Biden and Harris will have won a decisive electoral college and plural vote margin, It remains astounding that 71 million Americans looked at the last four years, a pandemic that has taken 235,000 lives, children in cages, the attempt to strip healthcare from millions, and decided that, yeah, four more years would be great. In fact, Trump exceeded his vote total in 2016 by nearly 9 million votes. If you've read my book, Healing Politics, you know I tend to take a different view on Trump supporters. To be sure, some of it is driven by the racial resentment he stokes up but a lot of it is driven by the profound insecurity of American life in so many of the communities that lean hardest for him. It's that insecurity that leaves people vulnerable to demagoguery and conspiracy theories, the kind of thing that Trump has weaponized for political purposes. If we're going to heal our country, it's going to be because we look at the causes of that insecurity and take them head on. We have to heal the brokenness of our economy, our schools, our roads and bridges, and yes, our healthcare system. Right now, COVID-19 is bearing down on hospitals across this country. But its impact isn't felt the same in all communities. For a long time, hospitals in rural communities have been closing in record numbers, a consequence of the poverty and hollowing out of those communities, a for-profit healthcare system that shuts down unprofitable hospitals, and the fact that Medicaid doesn't reimburse providers like it should. We speak with Sarah Jane Tribble, a correspondent at Kaiser Health News and host of the podcast No Mercy, a podcast about the closing of a rural hospital in Kansas, and Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal, editor-in-chief at Kaiser Health News and an expert on the American healthcare system and author of the book, An American Sickness, How Healthcare Became Big Business and How You Can Take It Back. After the break. 
We are really lucky to be joined today by Sarah Jane Tribble. She is senior correspondent at Kaiser Health News, and she is the host of the new podcast, No Mercy, uh, the first in a series called Where It Hurts from St. Louis Public Radio and Kaiser Health News, as well as uh, Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal. She's a return guest to us, and she is the editor-in-chief at Kaiser Health News. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thanks for having us, Abdul. Yes, thank you. So I want to jump right in because I, I thought the podcast, uh, obviously it's not quite done yet, but um, I've really enjoyed listening to it. Can you tell us about the genesis of this podcast, why you felt like it was so important to, uh, to shine a light on rural health care and some of the challenges that people face? Uh, yes, the origin story of this podcast, uh, Sarah Jane is from rural Kansas. And, you know, we've heard a lot about oh, yeah, you know, rural hospitals are closing at a prodigious rate, which is true, of course. Uh, there's been great attrition of uh, rural hospitals in the past five years. Um, but we wanted to get a better sense of what that means because people are often just wringing their hands and saying, oh, this is bad. And we really wanted, I, I, I wanted Sarah Jane to go down and explore what's lost when a rural hospital closes and to think about, in following it for a year, what could replace that kind of health care? Because you have to remember that most of these rural hospitals were built in the 19th century, where you couldn't just drive to St. Louis or Kansas City. So, you know, we, we know we need something in rural America to take care of rural Americans. But what is it? And also, um, I think when she first came back from her first reporting trip, this was initially a print series. She had me listen to a tape of some of the voices she collected. And what we realized pretty quickly is that when a rural hospital shuts down, um, it's much more than healthcare that's lost. I mean, it was really pulling the fabric of this town apart economically and socially. And so she spent a year going back and going back to create this podcast. And I'm so mm. proud of it. Yeah, it's it's a fantastic listen. And, you know, for folks who haven't gotten to take a listen yet, it's about what happens when a hospital called Mercy uh, shuts down in a rural town pretty close to where you grew up, Sarah Jane. Can you tell us about about what you unpacked and what you found most striking about the role that this particular hospital and its loss played in uh, the community that near where you grew up and also uh, that, that feels a lot like what rural America is is generally going through all over the country? Yeah, so... Fort Scott is about an hour and a half, two hours south of Kansas City. So you fly into Kansas City and you start driving southwards. I grew up on a gravel road about an hour south of Fort Scott. Mm. Fort Scott is a historic community, and it was uh, always thought of as a really cool place to go when I was a kid because it has um, an historic fort in it that was created in the pioneer days, right? And so when my mom called to tell me that the hospital was closing, um, I knew that it was the second hospital in the region that Mercy out of St. Louis was closing. They had closed a previous hospital in 2015 in Independence, Kansas. And so going there, my first instinct was I need to talk to that hospital president. Kansas has had not expanded Medicaid, and I wanted to find out what the impacts of sort of the financial um, reimbursement implications mm. were for not expanding Medicaid and and Medicare payments and how those were trickling into that community and what impact that had on the hospital. So my first step was to interview the, the hospital president. And um, what did you learn? 
Well, she said that uh, Medicaid would not have necessarily saved them. It would have helped. Uh, she said that there were many other factors. And, and this is why we're seeing hospitals close across the country, um, one to two every month for, for more than a year now. And it's been a decade of more than 130 plus hospital closures across the country. And it's because of the reimbursement system that we've set up for hospitals across the country, particularly rural hospitals, just isn't working. We pay hospitals mm. for um, services that they provide, right? Elective surgeries make a lot of money. Um, we hope mm -hmm. hospitals uh, make up any losses with private insurance. But in rural America, you have a largely sick, older, uh, and lower income population that's dependent on things like Medicare and Medicaid. And those dollars often, um, the hospitals say, aren't enough to keep them open. Mm. And uh, Dr. Rosenthal, you've written quite a bit uh, on uh, America's healthcare maladies in general. Um, how does this particular hospital closure, but really the epidemic of hospital closures in rural communities generally speak to the broader problems in American healthcare? Well, we expect hospitals to thrive and survive on elective procedures and on that portion of patients that have private insurance, which can be charged an awful lot. You know, Medicare sets rates, mm. which hospitals will say don't cover their costs. I think that's quite debatable. Um, Medicaid definitely is a, a below-cost payer in many places. Um, but so everything depends on a hospital's what we call payer mix. Do you have a lot of uh, insured patients who you can charge outrageous prices to, to support the other work. And many hospitals built for that. They, they intended mm. on that, including for a while Fort Scott Mercy. They, they survived that way. Um, and increasingly, particularly in rural areas as people have moved out and the urban hospitals, the big medical centers have drawn in these little hospitals, they pull away the insured patients, right? And so all you're left with are the the Medicaid, Medicare, uninsured patients. Mm. And, you know, not only is it the in insurance mix, what, what was fascinating is when Sarah Jane, and you may want her to talk about this, asked, well, how many people are in this big hospital on a given night? It's almost none mm. because if people need, um, you know, a stent placed or, you know, a, a, some complicated vein surgery, they're like, no, I don't want to go to my local hospital. I'm going to go to the fancy hospital 50 miles away. So it's a combination of we pay hospitals as if they have this great private payer mix that supports their other work. And many hospitals don't have that anymore. So our payment system is really abandoning rural health care and creating the crisis there. And, and if I could just follow up on that, um, two things. One is the insurance, right? So if I'm privately insured in Fort Scott in particular, and this is happening across the country, um, what I'm seeing across the country is that insurance has changed in the last decade, right? Mm -hmm. Like in the last 15 years, we have seen the onslaught of high deductible health plans. And when I sat down with the CEO of Mercy Hospital, when she was still the president before it closed, she said, you know, we have payers in town where a, a mother can have a baby and have to pay cash for it because their insurance doesn't cover it because a deductible is so high. Wow. On average, I mean, they were seeing deductibles of 2,500 to 5,000. And if you have a population of working poor, they can't afford that deductible to pay it before insurance starts to cover it. So even if they had private insurance, it often wasn't enough for the coverage. And the second thing on that private insurance is 
the employers and the insurance companies would um, say, shop around for your MRI, shop around for your CAT scan, go someplace else that's cheaper. Go ahead, drive up to Kansas City to the hospital that is a little bit cheaper for that coverage. And that was encouraged with those high deductible health plans, of course. And of course, we want insur- we want healthcare to cost less, but um, but the way the system is is evolving uh, doesn't always make it fair to all the players. Hmm. So it is this sort of brutal interplay between the ways that insurance and the hospital industry have sort of worked together to take their own little piece out of the system that's led the whole thing to kind of crumble, especially for some of these folks. And for the listeners who uh, don't know what a deductible is, a deductible is the amount of money you have to pay before your insurance even kicks in. And um, you know, you can imagine the circumstance that Sarah Jane is talking about where you worry about whether or not your deductible is going to be so expensive for your insured care that you choose instead, even if you're insured, to just pay the services cash, which, of course, if the operative word in insurance is sure, uh, then defeats the entire purpose of having insurance. Um, Sergeant, what did you find left over you know, in, in the community after the hospital closed? What did it mean for folks uh, in this community, especially considering the fact that for a lot of people, um, they were relying not just for healthcare on this hospital, but also for their daily bread. It's one of the biggest employers in in, in the community. What did it mean for the, the local community in terms of healthcare uh, and overall economic consequences? Sarah Jane, can you remind us how big this hospital was and how many beds were were filled in its last month of existence? So it was 60 uh, beds at one point, and the president had lowered it down to a 45-bed license. Um, at, in its earlier days, it was a, a massive hospital. It was larger than three football fields in size. Wow. Um, and so they had built this in the early 2000s, and it was full at that point. And then over the years, the p- number of patients started declining. The weekend before I arrived in December 2018, there were no patients in the beds. No wow. patients. And they were basically down to not real surgeries, the president said, because they didn't have any specialists on staff. She had closed down skilled nursing units to save money. So she had been, and this happens in a lot of places across the country, rural hospitals will just have to cut services and shut down units. Well, when you shut down surgeries, then the pathologists don't have any work to do, right? There's there's a, a trickle-down effect there within the hospital. So for years... Um, you know, Mercy Hospital Fort Scott was cutting services and, and had done some layoffs. But there were more than 200 people employed when the hospital closed, um, anywhere from the doctors down to the, the staff, the janitorial staff. And, um, you know, Rita Baker, the president of Mercy Hospital at the time, tried hard to find everybody jobs, but many of them were out of town. Uh, they had to travel out of town. And um, many people retired early because they'd been employed for decades at that mm-hmm. point. The trickle-down effect of a a major anchor institution in a rural community closing is not just from the hospital jobs, but all the jobs supported by the hospital, right? And Mm -hmm. so there are all sorts of studies on the economic um, fallout from this to a lower per capita income on average in the community, higher um, unemployment rates in the community, and, and this happens you know, pretty universally. In Fort Scott, the city leaders um, wanted to say that there were plenty of jobs available, um, but many of those were in manufacturing and not all of them paid as well as the hospital. In a lot of rural communities, um, the hospital is the place to find a a good white collar job. It's the biggest employer of those kinds of jobs. Mm. 
And I know you um, you probably didn't expect that by 2020, when the series was coming out, we'd be facing the worst pandemic in over 100 years. But here we are. And um, how has the advent of the pandemic um, in this community now changed uh, the the way that the community members think about the loss of this hospital? So I've been in touch with several people in the community, and this is a community, as you might imagine, that voted largely Republican in the 2016 election. And Mm -hmm. some of them are wearing masks and some of them aren't. Um, They have been, um, they've seen some clusters of cases in Fort Scott, particularly there's a community college there. And um, my understanding is when those students started to come back, they saw a bit of a rise in cases. The community itself, they have a hospital a, a little over 30 miles away. And that hospital has stopped elective surgeries at this point. It is filling up. They have a significant number of COVID patients. And so I think Mm. that people in the community are realizing that, you know, if they get sick, the hospitals have limited capacity and, um, and some of them are taking their chances and some of them aren't. Mm. And Dr. Rosenthal, how, how do you feel like the pandemic may exacerbate some of the trends that, uh, we see at play in the closing of this particular hospital and rural healthcare in general? I think it's going to have a disastrous effect. Um, You know, these were hospitals that, as Sarah Jane said, were kind of teetering on the brink for years and slowly trying to make the best they could with the resources they had and the money they could generate. But, you know, COVID, um, despite what uh, Donald Trump has said, is not a good moneymaker. It is a money loser for hospitals. And... um, you know, if you're teetering on the edge, as these hospitals were, a massive pandemic that requires a lot of um, high-intensity care that will not get reimbursed that well is going to push you over the edge. So I expect we'll see a lot more hot rural hospital failures. And frankly, a lot of people uh, in rural areas where we're seeing a, a, an explosion of COVID right now get sick and um, have really bad health consequences, uh, long-term effects, if not death, because there really isn't health care around to temporize them. If you're really sick and you can't breathe, driving to Kansas City takes a long time. I mean, Sarah Jane interviewed one Mm. person who had to be medevaced for um, a non-COVID reason. Uh, But, you know, we're going to see a lot more of that. And, you know, COVID has been uh, a huge stress in the cities. I think it's an unsupportable stress for some of these rural health care providers. And I, I think if you listen to the podcast, you're going to hear voices that are strikingly sick. Uh, you're going to hear a lot of older voices because rural America is uh, largely um, mm. many uh, people are older there, over 65 years old. And you're going to hear people who have struggled to stay healthy over the course of their lifetime. And um, in the very first episode, you hear somebody having trouble breathing because they have emphysema. Both her and her husband have emphysema. And smoking rates are higher in rural America. They're higher in Fort Scott, Kansas. And obesity is higher in rural America. And mm-hmm. I think we've all come to learn with the coronavirus that um, you know we worry about our lungs and we've learned that there are certain factors to your health that make you more susceptible to the coronavirus. And when I think about the people I've met and interviewed over the last two years for this project, I'll be honest, I worry. Because if they get sick, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if the hospital's going to be full down there by the time they get sick. 
I don't know if they're going to um, take mm -hmm. action and try to go someplace where they can get help sooner rather than later. Um, you know, cancer rates in rural America aren't necessarily that different, but mortality rates for cancer are higher. And that's because people don't seek care as quickly. They are diagnosed later, mm -hmm. and then they don't have as easy access to care. So just using that one kind of example, um, it, it scares me to think about how people might respond when they get sick and, um, and they don't want to travel. And you do hear in the voices in the podcast, one of the um, kind of tragic and beautiful things is that spirit of resilience like we're going to, you know, we've been through a lot of hardship. We can make this work. Um, and, you know, they're trying so hard to get the health care they need. They're driving hours. They're helping each other out. And it's just not quite working for them. So I think, you know, that was what we wanted to explore. So what does a town like Fort Scott really need to stay healthy? Maybe it doesn't need a hundred bed hospital, but it doesn't need to be abandoned either. Mm -hmm. And and this was the, the question I wanted to finish with, you know, as we think about the consequences that COVID-19 are going to bear down upon local rural uh, hospitals and health units with, and then also thinking about the trends that we talked about, about why they're closing even before the pandemic, what does a solution look like? How do you provide people in a community like Fort Scott, Kansas, uh, access to high quality healthcare that is sustainable and uh, can address their needs. So one of the most beautiful things about covering Fort Scott was um, the president of the hospital was from the area. She grew up on a farm south mm. of town and she was trained by the nuns. She'd been there for more than half her life and she had raised her kids and her grandkids in town. She really cared about the community. She was also very well connected with the Kansas Hospital Association, and she'd been lobbying lawmakers in Congress um, for a number of years, going on trips to talk about what um, what facilities were needed in rural America. And um, in the end, what she did is she made sure, she tried very hard and made sure there was emergency services in town. And if you talk to any expert in the U.S. Um, out of Texas or the East Coast or Mark Holmes out of UNC, they all say emergency services. Those are important for rural communities. Uh, Rita Baker took it a step further, and she's the president of Mercy Hospital, a former president. And she said that we need healthcare services that um, do preventive measures, right? What we need in this community is anti-smoking. We need to make sure the childbirths are done in a healthy way. We need um, a federally qualified healthcare center to come to town. And there was a big regional one in southeastern Kansas, and she recruited them, and uh, they took over the primary care offices that Mercy had been operating. She made sure the ambulance services got transferred to the county. Those things were very important. Now, there are things missing, too, in the community still. Months after the hospital closed, the dialysis center closed. And there's a lot of people with kidney failure in rural America. Um, the cancer center that was mm. based in the hospital, it never reopened. And that, you know, people with cancer in rural America do have to travel a lot further, and it makes it more difficult to get care. So there are some solutions out there. There's also some some things that need to be tackled. Um and let me pause there and say other solutions across the country include emergency rooms with hybrid beds, where maybe those are beds that aren't um, fully staffed all the time, but they can be put into use if you need somebody to stay overnight for a few days for an extra dose of I, you know, intravenous um, liquids and so forth because they're dehydrated. There's lots of solutions across the country. The challenge is the funding for them because the way Medicare and Medicaid is funded doesn't necessarily support these innovative ideas that are being put forth throughout the country. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's a striking reminder that, you know, when it comes to health care, on the one hand, it's the provider side, and on the other, it's almost always the payer side. And it's a stark reminder, the the saying, and I forgot who said it, um, is that, uh, you know, programs for the poor are a recipe for poor programs. And unless we are able to invest deeply in funding that is equitable uh, and consistent, then you end up having these scenarios where whether you're talking about uh, low-density rural communities or low healthcare access density urban communities, you end up having the same kind of hollowing out of uh, of healthcare resources. Because a lot of the story, believe it or not, reminds me of my time in Detroit and the uh, low quality access to primary care and even secondary, tertiary, and quaternary care uh, through hospitals in a community like Detroit because almost everybody there uh, was insured via Medicaid. And um, because uh, Medicaid reimburses so poorly, uh, it's a disincentive for high quality healthcare providers to locate into the city. And so literally you could draw a map of the city of Detroit based on all the primary care providers that dotted right outside the city limits. And um, uh, it's a sad reality of the way that poverty shapes both rural and urban healthcare. I really, really appreciate y'all coming um, to share uh, this really important story with us. And for folks who are looking for uh, the pod, you can find it on Where It Hurts, um, on anywhere you get your podcasts. The season uh, is called No Mercy. Uh, and uh, we were really lucky to be joined by the host and national correspondent for Kaiser Health News, Sarah Jane Tribble, uh, and the editor-in-chief, Dr. Uh, Elizabeth Rosenthal. Thank you both for, for making the time today. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Again, our guests were Sarah Jane Tribble, host of the new podcast, No Mercy, and Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal author of the book, An American Sickness, How Healthcare Became Big Business and How You Can Take It Back. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. With cases spiking, I'm really worried about Thanksgiving coming up in just a few weeks. It's one of the most hallowed occasions on the holiday calendar, a time of festivities and togetherness. But given the pace of spread right now, I worry about what that might mean for spreading the virus even faster. There are 71 days between now and when Joe Biden puts his hand on that Bible and swears the oath of office. That's 71 days of what could be the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic. And until then, we've still got Donald Trump, quote-unquote, leading the response. And though he's not yet in power, there's a lot that the president-elect can do. Much of that is simply leading by example, wearing masks and encouraging others to, social distancing, and empowering a collective effort to take on the virus. What Biden's win showed us is that decency matters. Can that decency inspire millions of Americans to do the decent thing and wear a mask, socially distance? make sure to wash their hands. There was also phenomenal news out of Pfizer and BioNTech's clinical trial yesterday. A vaccine developed by Pfizer and BioNTech has shown a 90% efficacy rate in a trial with more than 43,000 participants. It doesn't mean that there's a vaccine just yet. We're still waiting on the full study results, and the actual vaccine probably won't be ready to deploy until the end of the year. But this is a game changer. Finally, Passing so much of the Biden agenda relies on control over the House and Senate. And right now, control over the Senate could come down to two runoff races in Georgia, which Biden appears to have carried by the slimmest of margins. If we want to solve so many of the challenges Americans face because of this pandemic, a COVID-19 bailout, a green recovery plan, extending health care access to those who've lost it, even saving the kind of rural hospitals that Sarah Jane and Elizabeth spoke with us about, there's a lot riding on those two seats. Go to votesaveamerica.com to learn more about how you can help. For the episode after Thanksgiving, we'll be joined by Dr. Syra Medad, an infectious disease doctor, and we'll be answering all of your questions about COVID-19 and where we go from here. If you've got a burning question that you'd like us to answer, email it to us at americadissected at crooked.com. 
America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Lyra Smith, and Allison Falzetta. The theme song is by Takaya Suzawa and Alex Uguera. Our executive producers are Sarah Geismer and me, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed, your host. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.